7 o'clock on the button. You know what time it is. Time for Iron Sports 95.9, the true oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo along for the ride as well. And Ira, massive show on tap tonight. We'll talk about all that in just one second. But I feel like this week and, and this weekend might go down as one of those historic things where your kids ask, where were you when Andrew Luck retired? Did that completely catch you off guard like it did? I was out watching uh, you know, the Florida, um, the Florida UM game. And all of a sudden, it just started getting rumors around the bar that Andrew Luck, 29 years old, is retiring. And sure enough, checked my phone. I'm like, wow. And I just could not believe it. Well, it was a shock. And I always say that when you're watching ESPN and under the the screen, it goes red. I think they had like red. It was like flashing red on that. <laughs> and you read it and you almost think as I think someone said Andy and Andrew Schefter, uh, Schefter was reporting it. Uh, and someone said they were hoped that his Twitter handle wasn't hacked, you know, yeah. something like that. Because two weeks ago, Andrew Luck said, I'll be there for game one. And then suddenly you didn't hear, well, no, the injury is longer. It's going to take some time. You hear that one of the stars of the game is retiring at 29 years old. And, and hopefully we'll have some time to talk about that. And I say hopefully because we are just packed tonight. First, it's going to be a returning guest. We've had him on before. He's Tim Frank, Director of Communications for the NBA. Tell us a little bit about Tim and what we're going to discuss with him. Well, Tim is one of the high-ranking people at the NBA office. He's been there for almost two decades, and he has an, uh, he's in Australia, so he's going to be calling in. If there's any problems, it's because he's <laughs> there with the World Championships. But last year, we asked him a lot of questions about this upcoming year, about free agency. Um, it'll be really interesting to, re- to revisit a lot of those questions today. Um, then after that, at right around um, 7.30, we're going to have Warren Botke on, PGA Master Professional. Tell us a little bit about Warren, because you may not know the name, but this guy is extremely influential, and he's going to be live in studio. Well, Warren is is probably best known for the fact that an, uh, years ago, an 11-year-old kid came to him or with his father, took his <laughs> to the kid to him, and, and it was Brooks Kepka, and he trained Brooks when he was younger uh, and gave him the the standard and the basis. And, and Brooks to this day says he would not be the player he is without Warren's work. Uh, so it'll be great to have the num- the first coach of the number one player in the world. Yeah, I was going to say, that's not a bad thing to have on your resume <laughs> when the top golfer in the world says he's giving you the credit for his success. So it's going to be a huge show tonight. Can't wait. Stick around. It's Ira on sports. Ira, where have you been? You had a pretty busy week. Yeah, just I was in L.A. for the Dodgers. I didn't think I was going to catch all the games, but I caught three games on th- on uh, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Uh, so two of the Yankee series and one of the, the Blue Jays. You had... Um a lot of hobnobbing with celebrities, as you, I think you see more celebrities at a Dodgers game than pretty much anywhere else in sports, especially, I mean, especially you. Um, let's go back to Thursday, though, and, and talk about Dodgers and Blue Jays. This Blue Jays team, they may not be um, superstars, you know, in the next couple of years. They got a tough division, but it's just so funny and kind of cute how they ended up with so many um, former greats kids. Well, they have three players. Their lineup begins with Bo Bichette, Kevin Biggio, and Vladimir Guerrero Jr., whose parent, his fathers all played in the major leagues. Two of them were in the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that's ever happened on a team. No, there's no way. Um, and it was in, that game was intriguing because the Dodgers are have slipped into this nasty habit of not really caring, just winning. They've won now 11 games coming with behind in the ninth inning, the bottom of the ninth inning. So for the entire game, they're down 2 nothing. They had one hit, the pitcher, Ketsamayeta, had to hit. And then the ninth inning, they were get Bellinger doubled, uh, Seager doubled, and, uh, and then Kiki Hernandez. It's funny, he had, it was his bobblehead night, and he had the game-winning hit. Mm-hmm. Like, I was walking into the stadium, and I'm like, why is everyone wearing these Hernandez jerseys? And someone looked at me, you stupid person, it's Kiki Hernandez bobblehead night. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> 
sorry, I didn't know. But for him to have bobblehead night and actually have the winning hit was great for them. But the Dodgers, and I, I've left the game thinking they are not going to do this to the Yankees. Like they, they, Derek Law was pitching for Toronto. He has a five ERA. Uh, they are these comeback wins are against bad pitchers. When Chapman's throwing a hundred and something mm-hmm. miles an hour, they're not going to get this. If they're waiting to the ninth inning to win these games, as what we saw in the weekend, they are not going to win because they're not going to beat the Houston's or the Yankees. They're not going to beat even the Atlanta Braves. They're not going to beat the great teams by waiting for the ninth inning. So it's like, oh, we're so good. We can come back in the ninth inning. Yeah, against bad pitching, you can come back. <laughs> yeah, it's not so easy when you're against Aroldis Chapman. Um, let's talk about the Yankees and Dodgers. This is, you know, you texted me earlier in the week like, man, Mike, it's slow sports week. The, you know, the only thing that everyone in the country is looking forward to is what we consider to be the World Series preview, at least in my eyes it is. I know you got Houston. But, um, you know, Yankees and Dodgers, this is a story, story matchup that we don't get to see very often. Well, they played, what makes it so storied is they played 11 times in the World Series. Uh, the biggest, the number one matchup of two teams, the Yankees won eight of them. And uh, in the 1941 series, the first time they played, then they played 47, 49, 52, and 53. So in 12 years, they played five times, and the Yanks won them all. And then Dodgers finally won in 55, and the Yankees won in 56 with Don Larson's perfect game. Mm. But then we sort of remember, well, I do because I'm older, but the (laughs) 77, 78, and 81 Yankees and Dodgers winning with the Yanks winning in 77 and 78. The 77 game being the Mr. October, Reggie Jackson home runs. And then in, then the finally in 81, the Dodgers were able to win. Uh, they start, they had, that's the last time they met in the World Series. They started playing interleague games in 2004, but they only play every three years. So once every six years, they're playing at Yankee Stadium or Dodger Stadium. You, you don't get to see it often. I, I can't remember the last time the series happened. And, you know, I'm a devout, a devout Yankees fan. And Clayton Kershaw, you know, was, was playing for them last time. So usually I remember those starts, but it's been so long. That it just doesn't uh, didn't ring a bell. Let's talk about the um, the series itself. Let's go back to Friday night. You were there. Well, it was interesting because the, the everyone was wearing the black and white uniforms. The home to Dodgers were wearing all white, so you could not see. Uh, their names, you can see their numbers, and the Yankees had black, so you could see those numbers. But it was for this fan appreciation, and everybody. We we talked about this last week or last year, really, with the nicknames. So I know mm. all the players, so that was easy. But it is confusing, I think, for someone who doesn't follow the game so much when you have nicknames on the back of their jerseys and not the real names, even on the scoreboard, uh, to follow. But all the celebs for Friday night. I, I got there two hours before the game, and I got a picture with Larry David. So mm. that was pretty cool. Which, I, he doesn't seem like the kind of guy who wants to take pictures. You know, he wasn't friendly, but I, I had. I'm the biggest Seinfeld fan in the world. I had to get that. I sat next to Les Moonves, who is a, it was used to, ran CBS for 20 years, and he was with his son, so he just talked sports the whole time. Kevin Durant was a couple rows in front of me, but that was definitely Friday night was the big night uh, for everything. And the Yankees just the Dodgers were so overconfident, I would say. They're like, we have our best pitcher on the mound, Rue, who is unhittable, mm-hmm. and they destroyed him 10-2. Uh, Judge and Sanchez both hit home runs in the third to go up 2-0. The Dodgers came back and made a 2-1 against Paxton, who has struggled for the Yankees this He's year. He's been terrible. But... But then they, with the, with, on the fifth inning, with men on second and third, they intentionally walk Sanchez, and D.D. Gregorius comes up and hits a grand slam. And that was really the end of the game. And then it was just pounding, and Rue was just giving up more home runs. Uh, he pitched 90 pitches, four and a third innings, gave up, and uh, just was just terrible, really. And then Torres finished with a home run. And Cody Bellinger, th- this is what happened. Judge had a home run in all three games. Bellinger had one hit in all three games. In Friday night's game, he was 0 for 3 with three strikeouts. He didn't 
even hit the ball. Didn't even touch the ball. Three swinging strikeouts and couldn't even get a foul ball. Crazy. And he's their star player, the MVP favorite, and he was terrible. So they their best pitcher and their best hitcher did not come up well in that game. Um, so let's go to Saturday, and the Yankees didn't get the result they wanted. This game was kind of interesting. Not much happening. Well, it, it wasn't happening until the ninth inning. I thought it was exciting because you got pitching from Sabathia, uh, who just survived four innings, and Gosselin for the Dodgers, who was a fill-in because their pitchers are injured. Uh, and it was, and I was like, oh, this could be a 10-12 game, score runs game. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't. The Dodgers end up uh, winning 2-1. Uh, in the ninth inning, uh, in the ninth inning, they had... Uh, Didi Gregorius on the shift. It was in right. This is where the teams are trying to win. So they had the shift on Didi, and he tried to bunt down the third baseline twice, even with the third strike. So he's ruled out. And then Torres singled, Gardner got a single, and then Ursula hit a ball. It was like an inch in front of the catcher. The catcher throws it to second, and Gardner goes really hard in the second baseman, Muncie. And so when you're in the stadium, you don't know what happened. Like, is he out? Is he intentionally did Gardner interfere? So they went to review, and when you're sitting there, you could either been they could have been in many calls. It could have been Gardner interfered with Muncie, and not only is Gardner out, but the but uh, but um, the the first you know the both played to first base with he is out, so game's over. Mm-hmm. Or they could have actually Torres was coming around third. They could have ruled the Yankees tied the game. So as this feud, everyone's wondering what happened. Who knows what happened? And they finally ruled bases loaded, one out, and uh, and then and Jansen was able to strike out Talkman and Sanchez to, to win the game. So the Dodgers got that win, mm-hmm. and that was key, because otherwise the Yankees would have, if they won that game, the next game, they would have taken the lead in the overall record. Houston, the Yankees, and the Dodgers are all within like one game of each other for the best record in baseball. It's 7-10. You're listening to Ira on Sports. This is 95.9, the True Oldies Channel. In just about five minutes, Tim Frank, Director of Communications for the NBA, joins us. Then at 7.30, live in studio, it's Warren Botke, PGA Master Professional, known for training the man, the number one in the world, Brooks Kepka. Um, let's talk about Sunday. And, you know, the Yankees have had this Cinderella-type season, Ira, where guys are coming out of nowhere. Gio Urshela, Mike Talkman, Luke Voigt, who nobody really knew. Domingo German is not getting any of the talk in this. Realistically, if the World Series started tomorrow and the Yankees were in it, they're pitching German. And this was a guy who wasn't even thought to be on the in the rotation to start the year, but he's proven they're most consistent, and he was good again on Sunday. Well, Kershaw pitched a t- tremendous game. Except they gave up three home runs. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, he had four hits, three home runs, no walks, uh, 13 strikeouts. It was you either strike out against Kershaw. It was everything we talked about baseball. It was either strike out or home run. So he pitched well, but gave up the home runs. The Yankees went up. They, they were up 3-1, and they ended up winning 5-1. Uh, and, and German pitched a great game. Mm-hmm. Again, the Dodgers lineup, if you look at them, they, they scored uh, uh, two, the, the one game they won, they won two, they had two runs, they had one game on Sunday, one run on Sunday, just struggling to get hits, uh, very just, and um, Dodger fans now are totally deflated, and I think Yankee fans might be overconfident. It was great to be. I wasn't there at Sunday's game, but on Friday and Saturday, there were a ton of Yankee fans. I mean, a ton. It could have been like, 40%. Really? And they were loud. And they were loud. You felt like you were at Yankee Stadium and you got the Yankee cheers left and right. And I think the Dodger fans, the Dodger fans are very laid back. I think they were, and I'm with a bunch of Dodger fans, they were shocked by what they're like, really? what's going on? Like, why are all these <laughs> Yankee fans so loud? What is happening? Like, after every time there's two strikes, they're standing up and screaming and yelling. So that was it. This was, this was a series in August that I hope these teams meet. 
in in October mm-hmm. because it'd be great to, to see that again. But right now the Dodgers are deflated because they're like, oh, we thought we were the bullies. Like they were the bullies. They're beating everybody up, and they're like suddenly they went against another bully and they look terrible. I, was this the most? You know, you go to a lot of Dodgers games. Is this the most away fans you've ever seen? Oh, by far, Dod- really? by far, even, even against the Giants, the Angels, the Giants, Angels. It's no comparison. <laughs> the Yankee fans. That people That's awesome. Were, I talked to so many, and so many of these are. I think how many transplanted New Yorkers live in LA. Mm. This was their chance to come and scream, and they had all the seats in the down low. They had seats up high. They were the Yankee chants were going on throughout the games. And Dodger fans are normally fairly they're quieter. I, they were shocked. They were like <laughs> they couldn't take it. This is the kind of uh, inside info you can only get here on Iron Sports. I would have never known that, but cool story. Um, we got about thirty games left, Ira. Depending, you know, 30, 31, depending on who you are. Um, how's everything shaking out as far as the wild cards in the playoffs go? Well, everything seems holding steady. The Yankees are nine over the Rays. The Twins are three and a half over Cleveland. And the Astros are nine and a half over the A's. But those three teams, the Rays, the uh, Cleveland Indians, and the Oakland A's are all battling for the wild card. So three, two of those teams are going to get the wild card spot and one's going to be left out. And it's, it's sort of, I'm just waiting for someone to fall back, but they seem to be, they're amazing. If like the last three weeks, they've had almost the same, they're all Six and four, five and five. That time, I mean, the A's did well against the Yankees. They swept the Yankees, so that was uh, that was three big wins for them. Uh, in the National League, the Braves are distancing themselves from Washington, but Washington is is wrapping up that first wild card spot. So finally, a team is taking that wild card spot. The Cardinals are two and a half over the Cubs and four and a half over the Brewers, and Dodgers are a million games over the Giants. So it's back to the Cubs, Phillies, Brewers, Mets, Giants, and Arizona for that final wild card spot. And I kept saying, look, I thought Washington was going to get that that one of them, and I thought the Mets were going to get the other. The Mets didn't play well this week, but I still think the Cubs, Phillies, Brewers, they're just not, no one is distancing themselves from that that second wild card spot, but I think the Mets are the team that are going to do it. Well, that's what I was actually just going to ask you. Maybe I hear about it more because I'm from New York. I've got a lot of friends, you know, that are always that are Mets fans, and they're always talking about it. But it seems like the Mets. I don't know if it's the team also, but the fan base is surely deflated after getting swept last weekend. You still think the Mets are, are going to make it? Yeah, I think the pitching, it's, it's mainly because of pitching. Even the games that they're winning, they're losing, it's it's just sometimes middle relief. They have the best starting pitching, and I think the Cubs are having a lot of problems scoring runs. And uh, I just think, I think a lot of people, I think the betting favorite right now is the Brewers. People some, somehow like the Brewers to come in, but I, I do think the Mets will be the team. Um, let's go ahead and bring in uh, our good friend of the show here. It's Tim Frank, Director of Communications for the NBA. Tim, thank you so much for uh, joining us from halfway across the world. No problem. How you doing? Oh, doing really well, Ira. What do you have for Tim? Tim, well, thanks a lot for coming on. I mean, what's it's in Australia, so you're getting ready for the <laughs> for the World Championships, and I guess uh, all is well with the uh, and for the USA basketball team. They beat Canada last night, so that was a good win for them. But it's not people here in America were making, oh, this is terrible. The United States lost to Australia, but the Australians have Patty Mills and other NBA players, so the NBA wins no matter what, right? <laughs> Yes, without question. You know, it's funny. I, I was having this conversation with somebody in our traveling party the other day. Is that we've all kind of come around to the fact that there's so many good international players. But, you know, when the U.S. team loses, we act like the world is ending. And um, there's just a lot of talent. And, and it's just like any other game of, you know, in basketball. You know, college basketball, there's upsets all the time. And sometimes, you know, a less talented team might win. But um, because, you know, this team, Australia, has played together for years. They um, they shot the ball really well, and um, but yeah, no, it just shows the depth of talent in our league, and I and I think that's a positive thing all around. 
Um, and then also this past year, you have Toronto, the international nature of the NBA actually winning the NBA title. I was at the Golden State Games. Uh, the amount of Toronto fans that were down there for the game, so the Canadian fans, I, I, they're all supporting Toronto, was just shocking. Uh, it was, I mean, such a great, and they saw the victory parade and the excitement throughout the whole country of Canada. Uh, they sort of adopted uh, the, the Raptors as their team. So um, something different for the NBA and uh, just more enthusiasm for the league. Yeah, I think so. I mean, like we, um, I actually saw Nick Nurse last night because, you know, he coaches the Canada team and um, he's still on a high, you know, I mean, it, it was, you know, they became the country's team and, and they did an uh, incredible job supporting them. And that was a really good team. And, you know, Toronto's been knocking on the door here for a while. So it was, uh, it was pretty, uh, pretty interesting to see and, and uh, uh, certainly helpful for us to see a, uh, uh, that many people in Canada getting behind their team. So, I mean, this, the NBA, of course, in the summer when people are supposed to be relaxing and they're in the Hamptons and all that stuff, the discussion about player movement, not just in those summer months, but also throughout the entire year dominated. And the NBA was able to hold, I mean, even over the NFL, which is amazing, just the minds of everyone in America talking about where players were going to go, what they were going to do. Do you think during the year, was it too much? Did it sort of eclipse the games where people were talking about where the players were going to go? Or was it a good compliment to, to the games themselves? Well, you know, listen, there's, there's that dangerous balance you have to have. And, and, um, but I, I do think our offseason has become a show all to itself. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, I, I, think, that, um, I think it keeps interest alive. It gets people very excited for the season. I think you could argue that, you know, coming into this season is probably the most anticipated in the sense that there's no real favorite. Uh, there's a lot of teams that I think have a chance to win a championship. And um, so I think we're trending in the right direction. And um, and, I, and I think uh, once we get into the season, the excitement we've seen from the summer will carry over. We're talking to Tim Frank, Director of Communications of the NBA. Um, Tim, uh, there's this term called load management. And if people, I mean, four years ago, if I said load management, they would, nobody would have any idea what that meant and it seems to be more popular today uh, the fact that Kawhi Leonard only played 60 games and every time he missed a game was load management I know the league did a good job last year for the marquee games and making sure players uh, played those games but where is the concern with the league that teams are resting their players maybe a little too much uh, during the season uh, just to rest them instead of if not for uh, specific injuries you know, I think we have a, a pretty good rule in place for this. I think the thing with Kawhi that was different was he missed almost an entire season the year before. Um, and that, you know, we had a lot more flexibility for players. You know, we basically consider them injured players on the policy. Um, you know, so we'll see. It'll be a little bit different probably this year with him. And uh, listen, there's there, the investments with these players are very high now and the play and the teams want to make sure that um, they're keeping them healthy as long as they can. Uh, I think most players are going to play, you know, north of 70 games and, you know, maybe, you know, a little bit more. And, you know, I, we're also looking at some options on the schedule for the long term. So, you know, we'll see. I mean, I, I don't, you know, it's a hard game to play. You know, we've reduced back to back significantly over the last few years to try to help with this issue. And, we're going to continue to look at ways to, to do it better, but uh, I, I don't want to get too focused on the Kawhi situation because his was a little bit of a unique situation. 
Um, I also, I mean, I saw where Commissioner Silver was discussing about shortening the season, maybe having a mid-season tournament. I mean, one of those days where he's throwing out every idea imaginable, um, more like in Europe where they have that mid-season tournament. I, I love the way the season is now. I think it's, I'm not so happy with having this whole mid-season tournament, but um, are those things that he just threw out just for talking discussion, or do you see some need, some interest in, in definitely shortening the season or having this mid-season tournament? I think, the, I think for us, we always want to look at everything, and and I think generally speaking, we're just examining those possibilities. I, you know, we certainly haven't gotten any point where we're moving forward on anything, but we want to examine it, talk it over with our team, see if there's some advantages to doing it differently. Um, you know, I, I'm kind of with you, and like I, I enjoy the schedule the way it is, although it is long, and um, and so you know, we'll continue to look at it. But I don't. I don't think we're necessarily leaning in one direction right now. We just want to make sure we're analyzing the whole thing and doing what we think is best, you know, for our teams and our fans, and try to make it interesting. You know, the midseason tournament is an idea that um, there's so few things to win in the NBA, and 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 the way they've done it in the Premier League over in Europe is very interesting, where they they've built up these tournaments that are really important and. You know, we're just looking at it, and and we'll see if it, it makes any sense. But um, you know, we're certainly not anywhere close to any of those things. Um, well, one of the things you did to. I think was helpful for fans or actually for people who want to get up early in the morning <laughs> is that you move some of your games knowing that a lot of your star and marquee players are playing with the Lakers and the Clippers. A lot of the games in the schedule now are starting at 930, not 1030, and you're putting them on on Sundays. It, it seems like you're really trying to work the schedule this year for TV uh, to make it easier for people in the East Coast to stay up and watch an entire game between the Lakers and the Clippers and Golden State and all the other great Western marquee teams. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things that's important there is that there's a large percentage of you know of, of the population is in the eastern and central time zone. So, um, yeah, we moved up a bunch of games uh, at least by a half an hour. In some cases, an hour. We reduced them, at, you know, pretty large percentage, and um, and hopefully that'll enable people to be able to finish watching the game. You know, it's uh, it's a, sort of an experimental thing this year, and we'll see how it goes. But I think we feel really good about it. I, I think we think that. This is going to give more people the opportunity to watch more games. Well, I know last year we talked about rule changes, and one of the rule changes I didn't know was going to happen was the 14-second reset on the missed shot, and people were like, oh, that doesn't really matter, the, the J.R. Smith-type rule, I guess, in terms of coming in. But it did have an effect when you're watching the games because the offense couldn't just, if they missed a shot, they, instead of having the clock reset to 24 seconds, they'd only have 14 seconds to shoot. And you thought that was going to be a great rule, and, and it did was. It, it, I noticed it. I mean, every game you notice it on the offensive rebound. So I think that was that was very good. And also, the eliminating a timeouts at the end of the games, it, it, the game did feel at the end to, to actually go smoother. It wasn't just one timeout after another timeout. So were you, was the league happy with how those rules uh, worked? I mean, you're keeping them for the coming years, so I guess you're, you're pleased with it to some extent, but how did you feel those two rule changes uh, were uh, helped the league? We were thrilled with them. Um, I mean, the 14-second rule, I think, is great. At the end of the game, you want to see basketball. You know, it became a case where if somebody gets an offensive rebound with 20 six seconds to go you almost had to foul the game was over you know now you know you can continue to play defense and still get the ball back and, and uh uh you know so we love that rule the timeout thing was great i mean that was entirely about flow of game we felt like there was a much better flow towards the end of games which is important um so I, yeah we were we were really excited about how those worked and and uh i think uh, our teams were too uh, we had 
you know, almost no feedback in either case in which um, in which anybody didn't like it. it. It worked out really, really well. So the changes for next year are you're going to have actually the challenge system. I guess we call this a New Orleans Saints rule uh, where coaches can actually make a, a challenge. I mean, you don't, you don't have the problems the NFL has, but but uh, I guess someone will call, you know, ask for pass interference or something. But um, it's that's a change. Uh, I guess it's one challenge a game. And then also you're having the replay center, uh, sort of like baseball has where the replay center takes a look. In, and also the NFL is using that too, for having one central place to look at the game and make those. So the ref, uh, referees aren't sitting there making looking at every uh, at, in the stadium itself. Um, talk about those two role changes for next year. Well, the replay center, I, you know, we've we've kind of had you know we've had for a while now, and, and the idea was is, is they could uh, uh, change the uh, or, or you know they would decide on most of the calls, just not some flagrants and ejections and things like that. But one of the things we're changing this year is that we're going to enable them to uh, initiate replay, um, you know, if we feel like it's necessary. So I, I think that'll help. The challenge system was just something that really came from our, our coaches. Um, you know, Rick Carlisle's been pushing for a couple of years as the president of the Coaches Association that they just want to have one time that they can be able to uh, initiate a challenge if they if they feel um, they can help them. I think most of those times you're going to see that towards the end of games. Um, but we'll see. Um, you know, it'll it'll be an interesting uh, uh, little uh, change in the game, and and I think coaches. We we tested it this summer at the summer league, and it was interesting how coaches were using it. Um, I think over time we'll have to see exactly how they how they do it. I think we're seeing the same thing in the NFL with the new pass interference rules. So uh, it's a new new part of the process. You know, the most important thing is getting calls right, and uh, and that's what we're going to continue to try to do. Yeah, and uh, another unusual rule would be at the. I noticed at the basketball tournament we had Nick Elam on over the Elam ending and having having a set score at the end of the game uh, rather than uh, rather than have the time run out for the for the game. And I, it was used at the basketball tournament, and a lot of uh, NBA general managers talked about it. I guess that's something that if the NBA ever even looked at it, would you would probably be doing at the development league or or some other other tournaments that you guys run and to, to see in the future that could be something you'd want to do. You know, we've we've actually examined it from a you know just a statistical standpoint and, and been able to do some uh, studies and analysis on it. it. At this point, it's not something we're we're looking at. Uh, you know, we'll see over time, but I, I think we're pretty happy with where our game goes at the end of game. So, I mean, I was at the draft. And I've been to I think twenty some drafts, and I love it. I am the biggest fan. It's a it's the draft. NBA draft is great, and we actually I met Terrence Mann, who was drafted by the Clippers in the second round. And I think it's more exciting to see the players in the stands when they get chosen, and they're so excited. And we had him on the show then uh, with, with his uh, coach Cy uh, from Florida State. Uh, but is there any chance that the draft might get moved around a little bit, like the NFL does, but with that excitement? Because it is a really great event, and it's been at the Barclays for a number of years. And I was wondering if the league was considering maybe moving it to at least around the country a little bit. I had some conversations on that, but I, as of now, I think we're pretty comfortable where it is. You know, it's one of the things that's really good with, with Adam is Adam does not just sort of sit around and just continue to do everything year in a year, and he wants to look at it and examine it. So, you know, we'll continue to look and see what makes the most sense. Um, you know, we've, we've considered, you know, doing some things sort of centered around, you know, the award show and, um, you know, doing the award show and the draft in the same place. We haven't done that yet, uh, but we'll um, we'll keep looking at it. We'll see if there's any real advantages to doing that. And uh, one of the things 
I think the advantage the NBA has, and there's a lot of talk about the players and player movement and everything, but if you listen to the players in their interviews and you look what they're doing in the community, the league, you have to be happy with how your players, they're not getting, not only, the, the standard used to be the players aren't getting in trouble. Not only are not getting in trouble, they are leaders in their communities, they're leaders in the country. Um, what do you attest to the, you know, that, the ability that your players now are just not, like the hope is they're not gonna get this call at two in the morning that someone did something, but that they're actually doing amazing things and helping people. It's, it's, a, it's a great transition for the NBA in terms of what it was like 30, 40 years ago. Um, what steps did, has the NBA put in place to, to have these players that are, that are truly leaders in their communities? Well, I mean, first of all, we've, we've tried to be, you know, very supportive. You know, we've, we, we do a program when they come into the league to help educate them on everything they're going to face. We have a player uh, uh, programs department that works very closely with our players to help them, um, you know, in, in their transitions. But, I mean, mainly our players have just really um, – they they just really become great ambassadors for the sport. They've become great ambassadors for their for their home markets, their you know their colleges wherever they came from internationally. Uh, they've taken a, a real serious responsibility to that, and 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 it's been great. And you know we're very very fortunate. I tell people that all the time with, with our players. Uh, they really have a an understanding and a get it type thing of of what their role is within the. Um, we're talking to Tim Frank of, of the NBA. Tim, I think you we're talking from Australia, so you might have uh, might have toned uh, might have gone in and out from from Australia. Um, Tim, are you still there? I am. Oh yeah. Okay. Good. Good. Um, just one final question. I really appreciate you coming on Iron Sports. Uh, just, I mean, this year. I'm pumped. I mean, I'm so excited. We talked about it at the beginning of the show, at the beginning when you came on the interview. The teams, the parody, uh, I guess from the NBA's league office, the enthu- I have just never seen this much enthusiasm for a year. And is it filtered? Did you or Do you feel that too at the league office? I mean, people just cannot wait for this season to get started. Yeah, I mean, we're really excited. I mean, it, it is. Um, there's just so much uh, unknown and uh, a lot of uh, a, a lot of new stuff going on, and, and uh, I, I think you know when you look and try to create you know a list of who are the eight West playoff teams. Good luck, you know. I mean, it's just it, it's just there's a there's a real balance here this year. Um, I think we're going to see some really good teams in the East too. Um, um, and you know, eventually when Kevin comes back, it'll even get better over there. But but it is uh, it's a really exciting time. I think. I think all of us are looking forward to it. I think our fans are looking forward to it. And, um, you know, in the regular season, I think it's going to have as big a significance as, as any time in recent memory. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're really excited. All right. Thank you so much, Tim. Good luck in the World Championships. But again, you said you're the NBA, not just U.S. So, so you win. If, if Giannis and, and Greece wins, that's great. And if Patty Miller's on Austra- Australia wins, that's great. So it's, it's just tremendous. 25% of the league is international now. And uh, just uh, good luck and, and have a good time in China for the World Champions then. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. Great friend of the show. It's Tim Frank here on Iron Sports, Director of Communications for the NBA. I'm Mike Balsamo. It's 731. This is the True Oldies Channel. So I'm to bring in a very special guest. Very glad to have uh, him here with, with us today. It's Warren Bakke, PGA Master Professional, maybe most famously known for, you know, training a little guy named Brooks Kepka happens to be uh, number one in the world. Um, so, Warren, thank you so much for joining us here today on Iron Sports. Thanks, Mike. Glad to be here. Nice to see you, Ira. 
Yeah, no. Um, so I've got a million questions for you, and I'm your average weekend hacker. So I could talk to you for for weeks and weeks, and probably you know shave some st- um, strokes off. But I, I do want to know. You know, you've inspired and started so many people's lives and journeys with golf. How did you get started playing golf? Well, I was fortunate. I was a young boy. I lived close to a golf course, and a lot of journeys start with caddying. Mm-hmm. And I had the opportunity to caddy when I was 11 years old, and uh, you know, upstate New York, and I was up there and uh, fell in love with the game. I was always inquisitive of how people hit the golf ball, whether they're short, tall, long, fat, whatever, <laughs> whatever they were. They always seemed to have a different swing, and they found a way to get the ball in the hole. And uh, I, I gave it a, a shot as far as trying to be a player and uh, realized these guys are really good, and I wanted to be more of a coach. I got you know, more of my passion of helping people. Uh, Warren, you know, you brought up different people's swings, and that makes me think, you know, a lot of swings look beautiful to me. Some look super unconventional. Do you think there's a perfect golf swing? I don't think so. I think you can get, um, you know, set up properly, and that's mm-hmm. the one thing we worked with Brooks is three things, posture, grip, and alignment. He uses them every day, and uh, I think if you learn how to set up to the ball correctly and then where the club goes from there, the moment of truth is impact. Uh, Matt Wolf, he's out there and it's kind of a unorthodox swing. Yeah. You know, Jim Furyk. So I mean, you you know, however way you get it done, get it done. But when you get down to the ball at impact, everything has to line up correctly. When did you know that um, you know you wanted to? So you you tried as a pro, didn't go the way you wanted it. So you knew from there you wanted to keep your career golf oriented. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I turned professional. I was nineteen, and I I would say from twenty one to twenty three. I tried a little bit, you know, played some mini tours, did that kind of thing, and uh, I started to realize more and more I wanted to teach. I really didn't want to play, uh, you know, competitively, and mm-hmm. from there on, the rest was history. You can learn more about Warren on his website. It's warrenbottkegolf.com, B-O-T-T-K-E. Ira, what do you have uh, for Warren? Well, Warren, uh, the quote that Brooks said about you, he goes, Warren is the real reason I'm into golf. He is a mentor. I enjoy spending my time learning from him. And that's a great quote. I mean, not just saying he's teaching. He said, I enjoy my time learning from him. Uh, Talk about that. Well, I think, you know, I I had the opportunity to start working with him when he was 10. Uh, Bob, his dad, I worked with him all his life. uh, uh, And at the age of 10, Bob turned him over to me and said, look, he's all yours. And uh, you take him from there. And from 10 to 18, you know, eight years is a lot of time. And those are very, very formative years in a young boy's life. And we just had a connection and a chemistry. And to this day, you know, we we kind of still have that. Um, I saw something where you write write everything down. And I'm like that too. I love to write. I got that from my father. We write everything with, we do write everything. And I'm shocked. I mean, you have, you still have everything, every lesson, it seems like notes that you took and, and Brooks took to that, the whole writing things down that you said. Yeah, that was one of the first things I told him. I said, I want you to make a journal. I want you to write things down because you're going to forget half of what I told you today. And then you're going to forget 50% of the 50 or 25 of the 50% next week. So you're only going to retain 25%. So I got him into the habit of writing, jotting some stuff down. And then I've always recorded the notes on five by seven index cards. And I still have those cards. And now I sit back and go, well, 10 years from now, fast forward, if he's the 
best golfer that ever lived, those could be pretty valuable. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's, 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 it would be like the notes that, uh, like the Beatles wrote when they were doing their song. Right, their, exactly. Their songs. <laughs> um, and one of the things you first taught him, I was, uh, during the interview I saw, is that about cleaning always the sand from, so, uh, from his club. And he has an interesting way when he putts. He has two practice putts, and then he puts up his, his head, golf head, the putter head, and then cleans, or whatever, rubs it with his hand, and then puts it down and that was from you yeah that was a, a unique story about 13 14 years old you know the golf courses down here in florida they airify the greens and then they top dress with a light you know dusting of sand and i told him i said never fool yourself you never know if a particle of sand will be you know wedged in on your putter and that will divert the ball offline so make sure it's always clean and so he will take three practice wings look at it wipe the putter off put it down, look at the hole, and then go. And he's done that ever since 13, 14. <laughs> and all the announcers, other people are kind of going, what, what's he doing? And now I was watching the uh, tour championship yesterday. There's four or five guys that wiped the butter. <laughs> so maybe he started a, a, you know, a, new, a new theme. Definitely. And, and I liked what he said, and, and because I, I like to go to the driving range. I go to t tournaments all across this country. I was at six tournaments this year, and I love going to the, the range and watching them hit. And it's amazing. I, when I saw Jordan Spieth in the middle of the U.S. Open, like tinkering with his stroke and coming everything. And you see, and even when Tiger talks about it, it's even more, he tries to complicate it. And I what, something that struck me about what Brooks said, he goes, Warren helped me simplify golf so here's a guy here's an 11 12 year old coming and you said i'm going to make it simple for you talk about that a little bit well it's always the old acronym you know kiss keep it simple mm -hmm. stupid and I always tried to kind of keep things you know very light use a lot of acronyms that would resonate so you would remember them sometimes the rhymes things like that that you know that will fall back and kind of stick to you and I just saw an interview uh, last week, and he talked about, you know, PGA posture grip and alignment. He still uses it. He uses it every week, every day out on the range. Because I told him, I said, look, if you're set up to the ball improper, your body will find a way to compensate, and your body takes the path of less resistance. So if you can get yourself and your line set up properly, you're going to have a good chance of hitting a solid, consistent shot. Yeah, so you're... In the 2018 South Florida PGA Golf Hall of Fame, uh, 2017 Teacher of the Year, and PGA National, the Horton Smith Award winner almost every single year. So one of the greatest teachers of golf we have right here. Talk about not everybody is has a son like Brooks Kepka that comes to you and, and is this talented. In terms of getting youth, not only, I would say, youth to play golf, but actually interested even getting out there the first time. What, are, what can be more done to, to help get youth playing golf? Well, you got to keep it fun and you got to, you know, we don't really like to specialize in the sport till they're 10, 11 years old. So if you have an eight or nine year old, we want you to go ahead and spend some of the time golfing and then have a, you know, a secondary sport where you can go out and play. And what you end up doing is you start to work on different motor skills mm -hmm. and you start developing different things. So running, skipping, hopping, jumping, you know, pushing and pulling and doing things like that are only developing the brain and your muscles and your motor program to help you then be able to use that later in golf. Do you find that kids today, because of the distractions of video games and the smartphones and everything, is, is it harder to connect with them in golf? Or, or, you, or is it something about it that might connect better to them because of, of the of maybe the video games leads them to play golf? Well, that, that too. And I think it gives them a break. Maybe it gives them a chance. Mm -hmm. uh, 
there's a lot of parents out there with six, seven, eight-year-olds that are really trying really hard, and they think the harder I, I make them play, the better they're going to get. But you got to <laughs> let them be a kid. Do you think there's a, a significant advantage to starting at that eight, nine-year-old age, or you know, can you start working with someone at 17, 18 who's never picked up a golf club before and get them to the same level? It, you know, you can kind of lose a little bit of the traction back there. You know, you're kind of being behind the eight ball a little bit trying to get it going, mm. right? But, uh, you know, I've had some great players come at 16, 17 that were secondary sports where maybe they had an injury. Mm. I had a downhill racer who used to, was a junior Olympian, blew out an ACL for the third time. Yeah. And his dad said, you're done. <laughs> you know, why don't you pick up golf? And he's very close to getting a golf scholarship, you know, and he, it was only 18 months we had to work. So we had to work really hard, but he was a gifted athlete that he could connect to it pretty quickly. And that, that says a ton about your skills as well. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, you know, we got to work together, right? Again, we're speaking to uh, Warren Botke, PGA professional, uh, master professional. You can learn more at warrenbotkegolf.com. This is Iron Sports on the True Oldies channel. What else you got, I? Um, well, Brooks went to Florida State to play, and we just talked about college golf. Um, talk, it's it's when you look at the pro tour, a lot of Americans have gone to even Tiger. You know, Tiger went to Stanford a year, and it seems like it's that college golf experience has been a very good, valuable uh, learning tool for them instead of just jumping right into the pro tour. Yeah, I I think you see other sports okay with the NBA and the NFL and Major League Baseball where they cut out of college second, third year, right? Mm -hmm. And you don't see that too often on the PGA Tour where they give up their senior year to go turn professional. And the reason is uh, the collegiate golf is so competitive that it's almost like a mini you know, tour event and it's good for them to learn, it's good to work with people skills, it's good to time management. And it really prepares them a little bit more than taking somebody bypassing college and trying to go out there. And how many uh, pro golfers have their uh, alma maters on their golf bags? <laughs> <Let's see. laughs> I'll tell you, a lot of them do because they, you know, they really love it. They kind of drink the Kool Aid. Ricky Fowler with his orange on uh, Sundays, you know, right, represent exactly. Oklahoma State. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Tiger with red. I mean, mm -hmm. that, that yeah. that's for Stanford, red and black. Huh, I never thought about it, but you were absolutely mm -hmm. correct. And then, so Brooks went, and he took an, a different route a little bit after college because he went to the Challenge Tour in Europe. Uh, talk about that in terms of when you talked to him about going, why did he make that decision to go to Europe to play rather than, than stay in America? Well, it, you know, the tour made a shift right then with the web.com and how you go ahead and qualify for your card. And um, he wanted to, you know, take a different route and go out there. And, and at age 22, goes out to, to Europe and plays in Golly, I don't know. I think it was 20 different countries or 22 different countries, and from Turkey to India to China uh, to Africa to Kenya. And, uh, you know, it, he grew up quickly, and it really, really helped him a lot. But it was lonely. It was scary at times for him at different intervals. And I remember one time, I think it was from Turkey, he called, and uh, we would text and call periodically. And he says, hey, I'm done. I don't know if I can do this. <laughs> wow. And I'm like, no, you can because you told me when you were 13 you were going to play in the Masters, and if you give up now, you can't get there. <laughs> and he's like, you're right. So, awesome. uh, I mean, you know, So, you know, sometimes a boost of confidence like that always helps. So in 2014, he was fourth at the Open, so people started hearing him. And then in 2015, he won the Phoenix Open, which is the first tournament. 
but then certainly the, the last <laughs> three years has been, it's almost Tiger-esque in terms of the run in majors and winning four majors. And not just winning the four majors, but being in competition in all the other majors. Uh, to the point that Rory McIlroy yesterday said, I tried to play like Brooks Kepka. I thought that was, <laughs> that was his quote. It is. It's like all of a sudden there's been this shift where for, it was a guy flying under the radar, unnoticed, uh, really not given much media attention to all of a sudden now an icon, and him even coming out and saying, I could win 10 majors. So he won the U.S. Open in 2017, but then he got injured. His wrist spot for before 2018, he didn't even play in the Masters. And people forget that he didn't play the 2018 Masters, and, and a wrist injury that could have been derailing, the fact that he came back from that. Yeah, he was very nervous, very worried. It was for four months. He sat on the couch, and I don't want to say he ever got depressed, but he said he got lonely, he got frustrated, and to watch the Masters from his couch wasn't what he wanted to do. But uh, he got good news. He didn't need surgery. If he had to have surgery, he was going to miss a whole year. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I said, hey, look, if you have to miss a year, you're only missing one year. You're only 20, you know, eight at that time. What's one year? But, you know, fortunately with, you know, rehab, great doctors, great rest, he came back out and he really fell in love with the game even more, sitting there thinking and going, you know, I really (laughs) like this. This is what I want to do. Well, he won the U.S. Open, and then you were excited because he won the PGA Tournament, Belvir, and uh, Valerie, I'm sorry, and that was that meant a lot to you, being a PGA Tour professional. Yeah, well, being a PGA member of the PGA of America, I mean, I've been a member now almost 40 years, and I, you know, it's been my life, <clears throat> and uh, for him to come and win my tournament, our tournament as the association, it meant a lot to him, and it meant a lot to me, and for him to single me out and give me that shout out, you know, uh, at the PGA was, you know, it was really heart wrenching. So then you go to 2019 and, and one of the greatest years, a, a two and a masters that won the PGA in Beth page. And, and you, you went there for the, so this was the, the first major you were actually at the event and walking with now what, when in the, I was there in the final round. Uh, and did you, what, when he had four brogies in a row, <laughs> did you, were you, were you given some hint, help or helpful ideas or what? I don't know if maybe it was my presence, but, uh, <laughs> You know, I was there on Tuesday night. I was up at the uh, the past champions dinner. I wanted to be there and, and see him experience that. And then I was there all week and saw him Thursday. He shot 63 and then Friday shot 65. And Friday night I left him and I said, hey, look, you know, I got to go back. I got, I got a job. I got to do something, you know. He's like, you know, I really appreciate you being here. And I understand. I said, look, I don't want to jinx you. I wasn't there last PGA. You go ahead and just do what you did. And after Saturday night, you know, we had a seven-shot lead. I'm like, I got to be there. <laughs> I'm like, I got to go up. Then I thought, well, maybe I jinxed him by coming back, you know. <laughs> but uh, to your point, uh, geez, you know, the front nine, after 10, he knocked it in there about seven inches and uh, had a six-shot lead. I'm thinking, okay, now we're ready to go. And then he peeled off four straight bogeys. And, uh, you know, the, the crowd shifted. They started to, you know, chant DJ, mm-hmm. DJ, DJ. And then – you know, I on the 14th green, I looked him in the eye. He didn't know I was there because uh, I told him I wasn't coming. And I surprised, I wanted to surprise him. And uh, so I was kind of incognito the whole time. And I, lo- I saw the look in his eye, and it, he was more surprised because two things happened. He ever never had made four bogeys in a row, <laughs> and he never had a seven-shot lead. And now all of a sudden it's down to one. And when I saw him hit the tee shot on 15, he roasted it. I knew right then and there he's going to be fine. 
I could just tell his demeanor, the way he walked, that this is okay. And 30 seconds later, DJ bogeyed 16, then he bogeyed 17. We went from one to three shot lead with two holes to go, and then I knew. That's amazing because you did feel like that on watching it on TV. Something clicked with Brooks, and I said to myself, and we talked about it after the fact, you could tell he was just dialed in from that point. It was kind of saw it after seeing you. Yeah, it was kind <laughs> of like crazy. one of those things where you just you know got hit by a heavyweight boxer. Mm. He kind of gave you one of those dings, and, and you got stunned, and you go, wait a minute, I have to finish this <laughs> off, you know, and, and he did. I thought it was that tournament was great for him because not only is he he's paired with Tiger for the first two rounds Correct. and the fans were going crazy and I think he plays with Tiger better than anybody mm -hmm. in terms of I'm sure there's we can look at statistics but he enjoys playing with him enjoys the crowds enjoys it and and does it is not bothered whereas I think some other golfers when they're paired with these crowds it's just too much that you notice they're either trying to get to the tee first to hit if they're hitting first they want to just hit the ball before his crowd gets there and if they're hitting second then they're all tied up and after Tiger hits then, then they have they don't ever want to go second because after Tiger hits everybody starts walking and they get distracted but he seems comfortable no matter what in terms of what that's happened. It doesn't bother that Tiger is getting, of course, all the, the, the fans that are there. But then on Sunday, to have blow that lead and then have everybody screaming for DJ, uh, that he still was able to fight back that back. And they're saying, DJ, DJ, and it's so loud. But then I saw when he hit on 15, you, you could hear, right, 30 seconds later, the groan. So he must have known that something happened because DJ missed the putt. Because it, and it's so loud at Beth. It's so congested at that point, crossing mm -hmm. the road. Well, he, when he, after he crossed the road, he hit his tee shot. If you walk about 75 yards from the tee box, you're right by the 16th green. And he actually saw him miss the putt. Oh, okay. wow. So he knew walking up the fairway that he picked up another shot. And then he hit the next shot on, two putted, and, you know, then he was ready to go. He made his first par in five holes and started feeling, okay, mm -hmm. we're all right here. Well, that was a, another tremendous win and, and for him. And But I guess I, mean, it, it, I like the fact also that every time he wins, he thanks you. He's always mentions you. It's in every interview. Uh, I think that's just wonderful. I mean, you would see, because I think we're growing up about these players in tennis. You hear about like Sloan Stevens fired her coach and all of a sudden you hear everybody's <laughs> firing coaches. They're all getting in fights all this time. And, and here you have been, I mean, I'm close like to my sixth grade teacher. I had a sixth grade and I go back to Penn State games and we watch Penn state games together and I always check in with him and I think it's important like that but I think that that Brooks's relationship with you is it just shows you what type of person he is that he really knows where he came from and and and, and his appreciation for you every time he wins he always thanks you yeah it's kind of unique I mean uh we just connected you know from day one and the fact that he knew his dad and I are very close so I'm like a second dad to him he's mentioned that many times and the fact that, you know, when, every time we get together, we feel comfortable around each other. And uh, for him to constantly keep doing that, it just shows you how genuine and how honest and open and transparent of, of a person he really is. And that's what's so unique because a lot of these touring professionals, uh, top athletes in other sports, they forget where they came from. Mm -hmm. And they get lost in all the hype. And, and Brooks hasn't. And... I've given him a couple life lessons growing up, and he remembers them, and he recalls them, and because of that, it resonates where it's a flashback, and he goes, I will never forget you, and I can never thank you enough. And I said, no, you said thank you once. That's all. <laughs> you don't have to keep saying thank you. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's great. Well, he, he seems to play with it 
he definitely has a chip on his shoulder because mm -hmm. he doesn't get the has not as winning four majors. I mean, people forget that Mickelson won five. I mean, he's at a level now. I mean, where Arnold Palmer. I mean, he everything is in, in I mean reach of what he's able to do. And it seems like everybody's criticizing. Well, he won this. He won that. I mean, the excuses are ridiculous when he's always in the in the hunt for in the majors. Um, is that is that chip on the shoulder? Is it sometimes he manufactures it, or does he does he feel that? Do you think or? Well, I think he felt it in the beginning, and now he liked the, the comfortable feeling of it. So I think he goes back into that that mindset. Uh, he was doing it for majors, and now all of a sudden is coming into other tournaments. He now has a chemistry and a formula of how how to make that happen. And I think the chip was, in the very beginning, a little insecure, saying, hey, look, I belong out here. I'm winning. What else do I have to do for you people? Yeah. And then all of a sudden, now I've done it. I've won four majors and you're still, you know, <laughs> doubting me, you know, how, how come, you know, and now all of a sudden, you know, when you win, he just won, it was announced today that, you know, he's player of the year for the second consecutive year. Uh, he's number one. He's been number one now for almost four months. He does not want to lose that. <laughs> he wants that and he wants to make it stick. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, I, his, they, someone interviewed him after PG, after the Beth Page, and the interview was so bad. It was a poor interview because they said, well, you win these majors, but you don't really try in the other tournaments. And like, is that a problem? Like, why aren't you trying harder? Whereas, any other golfer, they're like, well, they realize they're playing other tournaments to prepare for the majors. Like, if they win the other, that's great. But even Tiger, who won more tournaments than anyone, always mentions, hey, look, I'm here to prepare. I'm get, This is getting playing for the majors. But somehow Brooks is a higher standard than even what Tiger has to have, that he has to win every tournament or something like that. I thought that was totally unfair to criticize the fact that he's won three other non-major tournaments but four majors. Right, exactly. And I think people aren't counting you know, what else he has done. And, and like I said, uh, the year he had here pretty much solidifies everything of any doubters or, you know, doubting mm -hmm. Thomas is out there because, all, you know, all the numbers, the history of, of the things he's done this year, you know, he's broken history in a lot of different things. And now he goes back to maybe three-peat the PGA Championship in San Francisco where I think it's only been done once, but it was in a match play situation, so I don't think anyone's done it in a stroke play. Mm -hmm. um, I, I have a couple of questions for you. Well, I mean, I, I do want to know what's your favorite golf course here in South Florida. I'm sure you've you know, played some of the best in the world. Right here, we've got some of the best in the world. So you know, what, what's your favorite uh, track here? Oh my gosh, there's, it's that's a hard question because you know South Florida is a mecca yeah. of golf, and there's so many great courses. I mean, obviously Seminole is right there, uh, MacArthur, Jupiter Hills. Uh, I mean, those are three that just come right to my head. I mean, PGA National, we have the champ the course. Champ. I mean, the Honda Classic has taken another look than it's ever had. It, it carries itself well. We're getting better. Uh, players out there, the course is getting tougher, and some people shy away from it. They're scared of it because it, if the wind comes and the rough is high, they don't want to go out there and shoot eighty. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've actually, um, yeah, one of my highlights of my career is actually um, birdieing fifteen. You know, obviously from the whites, right? <laughs> you know, it feels pretty good to know how difficult those are. I want to talk about the Honda Classic for a second. I've been fortunate enough to cover it um, for about a decade now, mm -hmm. and I remember Ken Kennerly, the director of the Honda Classic. We were at the media day before it started, and he's announcing um, exemptions where they get to invite whoever they want gets a spot. And he invited this young kid named Brooks Kepka, and he said to everybody, remember this name. 
this guy's going to be something special. This must have been, what, seven or eight years ago, I guess. Yes. And, it, you know, you, you, it kind of brushed it off at the time. And then, you know, sh- slowly but surely, it's like, wow, they were right about this kid. And it was amazing. I mean, I'm sure you remember when this happened. I don't yes. even remember how he played because, mm-hmm. he, you know, nobody knew who he was then. But that was like, uh, you know, looking back on that, it's a great moment in my life. And I'm sure, you know, for you, it was like exciting to have him playing in your backyard. Oh, yeah, it was definitely. I mean, I wasn't at PGA National at the time. But, uh, you know, I, I followed him and watched him play and stuff like that. And it was his really big first arena that he that he played in. And he handed himself very well. And he knew, hey, I belong out here. And this is what my dream is. So it was really cool. And Ken, he does such a great job with yes, the Honda. And doing those special exemptions for people around the area that are deserving. It's been neat. Uh, Ira and I both love the Honda Classic. It's like all, all year I wait for, for Honda Classic week. Um, it, it, it's interesting how things worked out last year, you know, with the scheduling, that it's becoming more difficult to get some players. And I know, Ira, you wanted to talk a little bit about the, the Honda as well. Um, is there anything that they can do, you know, and I think you said next year the scheduling is going to be difficult as well. Is there anything they can do to try to get um, some of these, you know, super huge Tiger Woods types back there? Yeah, I mean, I, I know right after the event, I mean, Ken was a little frustrated uh, because we didn't have the names that we did. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, with the Mexico thing, you know, with yeah. Trump going over, you know, to, to Mexico, the row, uh, that, that whole thing kind of convoluted the waters a little bit. So they're, they're trying to do what they can. But, you know, these tournaments are pretty much in stone and, they're, and it's hard to shake it up. Yeah. And uh, the tour knows it's a, it's a favorite place. Uh, Honda has been a sponsor for 38 years. It's the longest holding sponsor. Mm-hmm. you know, on the tour. So they don't want to lose that. So they're trying to, they feel like they have some horsepower behind it. So they're, they're in the works of trying to see what they can do. Uh, I don't know what they're going to do to do it. I know some tournaments do appearance money and different things like that. I don't know if that's the, the answer, but we have so many, I think we have somewhat like 60 golf professionals that live in Palm Beach County, it's Martin crazy. County. And this is a home field you know, game for them. It's a way for a lot of their charities to be recognized at the Honda Classic. And, you know, we, we, we hope that they give back as we give to them. Well, there was, there was that period of time when the Honda wasn't drawing the names. And then when Tiger moved and everyone else started moving around here, right. suddenly you look at even like Patrick Kennelly lives in West Palm Beach. I mean, it is just shocking how many West Palm Beach, if you just had the Honda Classic and said, you have to live in West Palm Beach to play in the tournament, <laughs> it would still be one of the best tournaments of the year. Right. Um, it's a shame because all of South Florida doesn't have a tournament. Now, one of the problems is that you can't play in July and August, June, July and August, and that limits it and there's too many tournaments that are trying to to play in that early part of the season because they could probably there is some space later on and uh, but it's a shame that i just want with all these players here this tournament could be uh, one of the elite like under the players tournament yeah we were looking at it as the sixth major yeah i mean because the players is probably the fifth and you know if you play it later in the year like september october after the you know the fedex cup the guys are tired and they don't want to, you know, get geared up and start up with that. We have hurricane season and things like that. It's still hot. A lot of people are away, so the gate would be a little bit light. And then, uh, like I said, they wanted to keep it in the Florida swing. That was the tradition mm-hmm. to have a Florida swing. So I don't know what the answer is. I mean, you know, change is good. I mean, look what happened with the PGA in May. And I look with the players in March. I mean, people are accepting it. I think it's one of those things you kind of get – 
you got to get you know kind of shuffled in and get settled and then once it gets settled for a year or two then then the traditions will come back once again, we're speaking with Warren Botke, PGA Master Professional on Iron Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. You can learn more about Warren at warrenbotkegolf.com. So you can look at someone's swing and tell that there's something wrong here. But golf has to be the most mental game on the planet. So how do you coach someone through something mental? I, I couldn't imagine how you'd even begin to you know, try to straighten that stuff out. Yeah, well, mental, it's, uh, you know, when you have something where it's a mental block, you know, we could call the S word, you know, the shanks and, and, and talk about that. It's like almost like a, a CD, you gotta eject it and you gotta put something else in there to kind of get that out. And, um, you know, it can be the yips and putting, it can be duck cooking it with a driver. So you gotta kind of sit down and you gotta change the mindset and then you also gotta make it fun with a game or a task so where that they can do a skill set to where they can erase it and then it doesn't come back and haunt you. Warren, what would be your um, your tip or your pointer to the average weekend hacker? Like 99% of us are, we go out there, we hope to break 100 and you know have some fun with our friends. What would be your tip to those guys to, to shave some strokes? Well, I, I, you know, I think first of all, you gotta make sure you have the right equipment. I mean, sometimes people just grab stuff off the rack and mm -hmm. you know that might not be very suitable for them. And then, you know, you're giving yourself, you know, a disjustice to not to go and get a golf lesson and try to at least understand what you're trying to do. What? How do I look? How am I physically set for this? You don't have to get a hundred of them, but maybe one or two to kind of get you a head start. Let you work on it a little bit, then circle back if you have the right guy and the chemistry and everything goes well. Then start a relationship with a person and have a coach. I mean, if the guys on tour. They're playing for millions of dollars every week. Yeah. Have a coach. <laughs> Why wouldn't you have a coach? <laughs> it makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. Well, I have one final question. You, you know, since you do this for a living and you have been, like you said, for over 40 years, been a member of the PGA, do you ever not want to play? You know, someday, I love radio, but some days it's like, oh, I'm really tired today. Do you ever feel well, like that? You know, a lot of days I'm tired coaching. And, you know, my, my golf has suffered a little bit because <laughs> of the fact when you're out there seven, eight, nine hours in the heat, the last thing I want to do is run out there and play nine holes. Yeah. So to your point there, yes, but there's a lot of mornings I get up and go, wow, I can't wait to go out and play 18. And then when you bring in places like Seminole, Pebble Beach, places like that, you can't wait to get out there and play. <laughs> Ira? Yeah, I just, um, to, we're talking about the mental side and I, and the top, something that's with the topic and Brooks has been at the forefront and is on the pace of play. Uh, and I think in uh, my comment has always been, I think that the top players, the Justins, the Rory's and the Brooks now play fast yes. and they like to play fast. And now you have some players, Bryson or whatever, who play much slower than, and now you're running in an area where I think the top players are like, look, we got to get this moving. And of course, television partners don't want to see someone take 20 minutes between a shot. Um, where do you see the game going on this whole pace of play? It's finally, I think there's, they're going to start maybe enforcing the rules next year. Yeah, they have to. I mean, why, why put a rule out there and then not do something with it? European Tour has taken a hard look at it. They're going to start putting some new inroads into it next year, and the PGA Tour is definitely in. I think when you hear the players pipe up and say, you know, we're disgusted with this, it has to change, then I, I think you're going to have enough horsepower behind it where they're going to start fining, penalizing, doing whatever. But I think it's more the... The analytical slow player that, that just wants to make sure, and really, it only takes three seconds to hit a shot. You don't have to 
have 45 seconds to think about it. Well, that's I always thought at Beth Page, I think that's where uh, where Brooks got in trouble on the final round when Harold Varner hit the ball and they had to go find the ball. And it, it, yeah, looked, like the fourth they, hole. it looked like forever. And he's walking through this, like the forest of Beth Page because it's a park, not like a golf exactly. course. And I think that like exhausted, I mean, it's like exhaust, but it, it, it seemed like going, cutting through weeds forever trying to find the ball and that there had to be a time to stop. Yeah, well, you know, Brooks was kind enough. He went down, he watched and tried to help them a little bit. The caddies did as well. You have thousands of spectators, and if you can't find it, you can't find it, but they were fortunately to find it. But then he's got to get in his mental shift to get back to his shot coming up and not worry about what this guy's doing back there. And then, unfortunately, he just made it even worse hitting a poor shot. So it seemed like 15 minutes before he got a chance to hit his shot. This has been great. We are just about out of time. Ira, anything left for Warren? Um, no, Warren, I, I really appreciate you. This is a phenomenal. We'd love to have you back. Uh, this is great. I've seen you at the Honda. You're an ambassador of the sport uh, and ambassador. And, and, and I think when you see how Brooks plays and how he conducts himself, uh, and I'm meeting you, you can see where it come, comes from. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just great. I'm so glad you're here and uh, involved in golf. And, and I hope you're going to – there's another Brooks Kepka out there uh, you know, tomorrow that's going to go out and tee it up. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for the invite. I really appreciate it. Love to come back. And I do have some young ponies in the stable right now that are <laughs> that are young and, and excited to go. And, you know, we're going to give them every chance they can. When they see players, that, that's one thing. When they see these local players and you see them out, like these, like the PJ Tour players aren't hiding. But, mm-hmm. I mean, the, you go to the Publix and they're getting groceries. And they say, wow, I mean, I think it, it does. It must motivate these local young golfers because they, they actually say, wow, I could be this person. Absolutely. You know, if you have the dream. So let's go ahead and try to make sure that we can live it together. He is Warren Botke, amazing guest. Thank you so much for coming by, PGA Master Professional. Learn more, warrenbotkegolf.com. We're about out of time. Ira, where are you going this week? Uh, U.S. Open, tennis. So we're going to do tennis this week. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited. I'll see Penn State opens against the Idaho Vandals uh, on Saturday. So I'm going to mix uh, tennis and Penn State football. Thanks so much to Tim Frank, Director of Communications for the NBA. Also, Warren, on behalf of Ira, I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night, Ira on Sports.